Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash culture. And buy The Great Courses, offering a series of lectures about food, including Essential Secrets of Spices and Cooking, Making Healthy Food Taste Great, Baking Pastries and Desserts, and Making Great Meals in Less Time. Order any one of these everyday gourmet courses for only $9.95 for a limited time at thegreatcourses.com slash culture. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Pry This Lectern Out of My Cold Dead Hands edition. It's Wednesday, October 21st, 2015. On today's show, Bridge of Spies, it's the new Spielberg movie, a period thriller starring Tom Hanks as an ordinary American insurance lawyer negotiating the moral dilemmas of the Cold War. And then Henry David Thoreau is the author of Walden and Civil Disobedience, the great American hermit saint that we take him to be, a tribune of all of our collective individualism? Or was he, as argues a new essay in The New Yorker, little more than a dishonest, narcissistic crank? And finally... Has the lecture format finally run its course? Joining me today is uh, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. And uh, and Laura Miller, the Laura. What do I call you? You're not really a. I think of you as more omni than a book critic. <laughs> I think my title is books and culture columnist. And culture, yes, those two separate categories. Uh, welcome to the show, Laura Miller, the books and culture critic for Slate.com. Hi. <laughs> Hey, Dana, uh, before we dig in, I take it we have some business. Well, we do. We have a couple of live shows coming up that I wanted to mention. The next one is uh, our live San Francisco show, our first time doing an all-by-ourselves Culture Gab Fest in San Francisco, which is exciting. It's on the evening of November 8th at the Brava Theater in, in San Francisco. And you can get information about that at slate.com slash live. After that, just the week after that, we have a show coming up with the Political Gab Fest, with the Hang Up and Listen guys. I believe Dan Coyce of Mom and Dad Are Fighting will be our host. And uh, that's going to be on the 16th of November at Town Hall in New York. The only other piece of business, Steve, is that I wanted to mention a new Slate Plus podcast for um, fans of the Fox show Empire. We've started a week-to-week Empire sort of recap and sort of a discussion of of Empire along with the political and cultural questions of the day. It's with Slate's wonderful TV critic Willa Paskin and our great culture blogger Aisha Harris. 
So if you want to investigate that Empire podcast, you can go to Slate.com slash Empire. And the very last thing, as long as we're talking Slate Plus, is that our Slate Plus segment today on our show is going to be Halloween related. We're talking about the scariest cultural product in each of our experience. And I think that does it for business, Steve. So back to the show. Thanks a lot, Dana. Okay. Um, Bridge of Spies is based on the true story or maybe inspired by it. We'll get to that distinction, no doubt. Anyway, it's based on the story of James Donovan, an ordinary insurance lawyer who, as the Cold War entered its deep freeze phase, was called upon by the U.S. government to defend a Soviet spy. Having saved his client's life, he's then asked to use him as barter to travel to East Berlin and help secure the release of two Americans held as spies behind the Iron Curtain. The film stars Tom Hanks as Donovan and Mark Rylance as Rudolf Abel, the Soviet mole and bargaining chip. Let's uh, listen to a clip. It's all about this man and what he represents. He's a threat to all of us, a traitor. Who's a traitor? The Rosenbergs were traitors. Who were they? That's your sister's They gave atomic secrets to the Russians. They were Americans. They betrayed their country. You can't accuse Abel of being a traitor. He's not an American. Listen to yourself. You're defending him already. I'm hungry. You're rehearsing it on me. You said you were just thinking about it. I am just thinking about it. It's very hard. Everyone deserves a defense. Every person matters. Jim, what do we deserve? Do you know how people will look at us? The family of a man trying to free a traitor? So that was Amy Ryan as Tom Hanks' wife talking with him about taking the Rudolf Abel spy case and, and whether or not he should do it. Moments after that, we discovered that he's already committed to doing it and, you know, he's, he's fully involved. Dana, critics appear to love this movie. Were you one of them? You know, I really, really was. I mean, this I feel like this is the, the strongest Spielberg movie in, I don't know, I don't know exactly how far back to go, but I feel like he's in sort of a late career period where he's just as much the technical craftsman as he ever was, but his stories sometimes feel like they don't need to be told. And this one, strangely, although it's a very retro, in some ways almost a, a Frank Capra movie, really kind of a very optimistic movie about American ingenuity. There's something very current at the same time about it, and it has some something to say about global politics in, in our time, which was sort of the last thing I expected. Mm, yeah, Mr. Smith goes to the GDR. Laura, the movie is very much a period piece. It's deeply a period piece, but it is pervaded through with contemporary dilemmas and anxieties. What did you make of it? I sat in the movie theater just so happy that I wasn't seeing a car chase or a impossibly balletic martial arts fight scene that went through a bazaar and knocked over a million fruit carts and just <laughs> the usual stuff that, that you see in a movie that's supposed to be full of intrigue and espionage. That that stuff can can be great, but it can also feel like a crutch. And, and I really, really enjoyed this film, the way that the tension was built up from what felt like very realistic very easy to identify with situations, like the fact that Tom Hanks' character has a cold through the whole last mm. half of the movie. Right, which is given as one of his main motivations for yeah. concluding the negotiation early is that he wants to get home and get in bed. But it also just reminds you of how vulnerable he is, like he's staying in this dump that's really freezing and some hoodlums steal his overcoat and he can't even keep himself warm and he's sick. You know, And you really feel that he's tired and that he's sick and that he's cold and he's miserable and that that is a big part of the whole experience of negotiating this exchange. Yeah. I mean, I one, Dana, one thing I find very interesting about Spielberg is that having essentially bequeathed us with the um, blockbuster as we now know it with Jaws and Close Encounters and E.T., I wouldn't go so far as to say he's trying to atone for it, but he's 
he uses his clout every few years to make an exceedingly patient, paced, would-be thoughtful film. I mean, I would even say Catch Me If You Can had a mode of storytelling that most directors without that amount of power can't engage in anymore. And I would say maybe the big word there would be patience, right? And this movie takes it to a meticulous extreme. I mean, you scarcely know what the film is about in some sense early on. It's, you know, Mark Rylance's performance is understated. It's an understatement to say it's understated. It's a very subtle, very delicate. And almost silent, right? I mean, he has very few lines of dialogue, Mark Rylance, and yet he establishes such a distinctive character as this Soviet spy. You really feel that you you, you know him at the end. And, and so interestingly, you have him who's utterly sphinx-like, if very human and appealing because of it. And then you have Hanks, who's in defending uh, Mark Rylance as Abel, is defending a principle about the U.S. Constitution. And I thought that was very well done. I mean, the, the point simply being that in fighting this totalitarian enemy, it was the hardest challenge wasn't defeating them as much as preventing our own totalitarian impulses from being given free reign in that fight. And it's Tom Hanks as Jimmy Stewart. He's defending a high principle that Americans can believe in in the abstract, but in the concrete possibly um, may fail at. And so this movie is really about our best self. So talk a little bit about the obvious correlation that people are drawing to today's struggle in the war on terror. Well, you see it in the movie itself, and I think it's it's hammered home without too much insistence, but you see that, for example, the two Americans who were taken prisoner in Soviet territory, the student and uh, and the U-2 pilot, Francis Gary Powers, are both, if not tortured, definitely subjected to some extreme interrogation. You see, on the other hand, that the American system, with Tom Hanks, you know, representing it, treats Rudolf Abel with, with more fairness. I mean, I guess my, my question in response to your question would be, Steve, I agree with you that this is, this is Tom Hanks as Jimmy Stewart's story. So why do we not find it incredibly corny hokum? What is it about this mm. movie that still seems like it has it has something compelling to say to us now besides just a message of American uplift? Is that just the, the artistry yeah, of Spielberg that, alone? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's partly Tom Hanks, who is really good at conveying that wholesomeness. And, and I mean, the, the concept of the film is that he and Abel form a bond because they're both men of honor, which is something that even transcends their specific alliances to their to their nations. I mean, we never really hear what Abel is actually fighting for, thinks that he's fighting for. He's just doing his duty. And Donovan sees it the same way. He's doing his duty as an American to uphold the American system. And it's inspiring to see it. I mean, maybe it helps that it, we know that it's, it's a true story and that he almost got Abel's conviction thrown out. He really tried. And that does happen every day. I mean, we we know about a lot of the transgressions, and then there are a lot of transgressions that we don't know about against those ideals. But it's also true that every day there are defense attorneys who are upholding them. I thought that restraint is the abiding virtue of this film. So the moments of suspense are not, I mean, there's maybe to give nothing away, maybe right towards the end, there's somewhat overly cinematic I, I doubt it unfolded exactly as it did. But nonetheless, it's just there's an aura of uh, remarkable trust on the part of the filmmakers and the audience to care about and follow th- the story without there being car chases and other sillinesses. But uh, the question I have is, 
one notes that the screenplay is co-written by the Coen brothers. It's a movie obviously directed by Spielberg. Dana, this seems to me a pretty interesting contrast of sensibilities. Yeah, the Coen brothers just have this very gimlet-eyed, you know, they're, th- although to some degree this is an idealistic movie, the Coen brothers are not idealist. And and the world that they're looking at is a broader world than just the Cold War. I feel like this isn't just a, a, a return to the values of the 50s. It's kind of a, a broader view of American justice and how it's worked over the, the decades since as well. So that when this you get this last scene of Tom Hanks looking out a train window at something he sees in the U.S. that reminds him of an earlier site that he saw when he was in, in East Germany, without revealing what, what that parallelism is, there's a sense that history is continuing to unfold, right? That, that the history yeah. we're in now is, is on a continuum with the same history that we've just witnessed. All right. Well, I like this movie very much, and I loved its appeal to our best self as Americans. Uh, it's also funny, something we haven't mentioned at all. The Coen brothers obviously are unparalleled at writing just snappy dialogue, and it's full of that. But Dana, this raises an interesting question. I mean, to the degree that this is a movie about moral fog, is Spielberg the right director for that? Is he someone who really feels sinister ambiguity instinctively enough to carry the material off? Yeah, I think that is the question about this movie, and it's it's it is kind of a sticking point with um, its substantiality. You know, it's it's wonderful to watch unfold. It's a really involving two hours of cinema. It's it's very thoughtful. It's full of all kinds of beautiful directorial touches, but ultimately, it does believe in some kind of American exceptionalism. And I think if you if you really want to go into it with a a dark, dark view of the second half of the twentieth century and sort of how how every player in that game was implicated. The U.S. gets off a little bit too easy. Yeah, it's definitely mm. not John Le Carré. All right. Well, the film is Bridge of Spies. It stars Tom Hanks and uh, Mark Rylance. Dana, has Mark Rylance done a lot of film work previously? I'm sorry to be so ignorant as to ask. Not but... as I know. He's mainly known as a stage actor and a stage director and a playwright. He was the head of the uh, Globe Shakespeare Company mm-hmm. in, in London, sure. I think, for many years. Um, I've always wanted to see him on stage. He just recently, last year, did something on Broadway, I think. But he is astounding. There's something about Mark Rylance. It's, it's almost like a, a, a magical charm that he exerts yeah. through this role. Well, and then, of course, he also just played, um, he just played Cromwell in Wolf Hall. I guess was yes. his most recent yes. big role. Anyway, yeah, he, I, my my antennae are up now for anything Mark, Mark Rylance does. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, would love to hear divided and vociferous opinions from our listeners. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you think. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do you got? Steve, in order to get into our first message from a sponsor today, I have to ask you a question. How do you like your coffee? And this is a multiple choice question. Strong and black. Mild, but nothing in it, with cream and or sugar, frappuccinoed, or I don't like coffee. Uh, Dana, I got to go with strong and black. I'm an espresso guy. Steve, I ask you this because it's the first question on the quiz at the clubw.com site, which is a wine-choosing club that is our first sponsor this Mm. week. So you answer a bunch of questions, including how do you like your coffee and what kinds of fruits do you like and various kind of flavor profile-related questions. And Club W picks out wine based on that quiz and sends it to your door. So since you're a wine guy, this seemed like something you might be interested in. This is a great idea for a business, Dana. If I'm not mistaken, you like wine, but you have not 
ascended to full snob status yet. <laughs> I'm trying, though. Actually, this club sounds perfect for me because I love wine. I drink it with dinner almost every night, and I seem to have this bar against learning anything about it. It's like it's a little bit like really? jazz or something. It's sort of like I know what I like. I know these things. But as soon as I try to master the whole field, I get completely overwhelmed by expertise. And like jazz, it's an area with a lot of kind of sadistic experts running around making you feel bad about what oh, you don't yeah. know. So <laughs> the idea of a club that helps you that helps you pick things based on your taste and sort of follow those trails it seems great to me. Yes, any knowledge about wine that cannot be operationalized according to your own actual tastes is is just sadistic arcana. A kind of sort of friend of mine was this French guy who had once been a, a highly regarded sommelier somewhere at some fancy hotel, and he was French, and he said, Steve, I must tell you about wine. He said, the thing about wine... It was Steve Martin, wasn't it? <laughs> the first... The first three words a person uses to tell you about wine, these are meaningful. As soon as they say a fourth word is bullshit. <laughs> bullshit is bullshit. He basically said there are three, like if you, you can give three adjectives, meaningful adjectives about any wine, adjective number four is bullshit. <laughs> That's actually very good. That's good writer's advice in general. Most definitely. So here's what you do. You go to clubw.com and answer six simple questions, starting with that coffee question I asked Steve, and they have an algorithm that creates a palate profile for you and then send wine directly to your door that's customized to match that taste. And right now, Club W is offering Slate Culture Gab Fest listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash culture. Okay, back to the show. Lovely. All right, moving on. All right, well, Henry David Thoreau is widely considered the hermit saint of American individualism and on and on and on. Pick your cliche about him, but this vision cannot survive any serious reading of Walden. So argues the New Yorker critic Catherine Schultz in this week's issue of the magazine. She goes on to say the real Thoreau was, in the fullest sense of the word, self-obsessed, narcissistic, fanatical about self-control. And then she goes on to say that Walden is less a cornerstone work of environmental literature than the original cabin porn Laura, uh, being a book critic and a great one, uh, I may add, I'm going to start with you. Um, this is quite uh, this is quite a performance on the part of Catherine Schultz. She really levels it at Thoreau, does not hold back, and and really, I I, I will say, heaps scorn upon him. What did you make of this uh, polemic? Well, as is often the case when someone decides to take down a revered figure, if you've ever had reservations or resentments against that figure, you can greet the takedown with a with a sort of cheer. I've always found Thoreau to be pretty insufferable, even though he is also at times a beautiful writer in his descriptions of the natural world. And in many ways, a, a, a pleasant stylist for his time. Um, he, you know, I, I, I have to say, I really do agree with Catherine Schultz here. I, I find him to be disingenuous and um, sort of superior and not you know, narrow-minded and not as smart as he thinks he is. Um, that was how I felt when I first read Walden as a college student, and I went and had a look at it again in preparation for the show and felt the same way all over again. Mm. Um, Dana, 
I'm curious to know what your experience as a reader of Thoreau has been and how this um, essay may have uh, interacted with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid I'm one of those readers that Catherine Schultz talks about who read Walden in high school and hasn't picked it up or touched it since, which I guess shows that it was not a hugely formative text in my life. Although I do remember that that other kids in my school, that sort of there was a certain brand of particularly boys, right, of like earnest boys. The one that I knew best was also a devout Christian who was really, really drawn to Walden, which is, as Schultz points out, this very ascetic text that is largely about self-denial and, um, and you know, very specific layouts and expenditures, exactly how much money he spent for his two years in the woods in the cabin, how much it costs to build the cabin, how much he eats every day, why he doesn't drink coffee or tea. There's this side of it that's very much a, a kind of a manual, a very strict manual yeah, for a certain kind like of living. A, and a, that is very unappealing to, to, to read as an adult who doesn't have the kind of idealistic aspirations that a, a young high school student might. It, it is. It's a kind of a, a to-do list with lectures. And it's partly telling you what you should do in the form of telling you what he did, and then partly telling you why this is the only way to do anything. There's just a citation that it's it's really hard to get around in, in Schultz's reading of Walden, where she talks about his, his sense of superiority to others, essentially, right? When he went to, to live in the woods in Walden for two years, which, as she points out, the area around Walden Pond in, in Concord, Massachusetts, was about as rural as Prospect Park in Brooklyn is now. <laughs> there was a train running along one end of the park, and people were always coming in to go fishing and ice skating. So it wasn't as if, you know, he was Grizzly Adams out in the extremely rural woods. But this citation... Sometimes when I compare myself with other men, he wrote in Walden, it seems as if I were more favored by the gods than they, beyond any deserts that I am conscious of, as if I had a warrant and a surety at their hands which my fellows have not, and were especially guided and guarded. So to hear that coming from the mouth of this 27-year-old Harvard graduate who's sort of enabled by the surplus of the economy in which he lives to have this time living on Emerson's land in 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 a cabin that he built on borrowed land... It just doesn't ring with the kind of authenticity that we want from our our nature prophets. Mm. Um, I don't disagree with the substance of what anyone has said. I think, you know, in order to have a critique like this gain a real moral purchase, I think you have to read a a writer with a degree of sympathy. And there's an initial antipathy to him that Schultz has that made the piece unconvincing beyond whether I agreed or disagreed with it. In fact, I agreed with much of the substance of it, but I couldn't lend it an ounce of credence because the dislike is so personalized and stated so unstintingly that, for example, you would never know that the words civil disobedience enter the English language via Henry David Thoreau. And the specific words of Walden gave enormous courage to Martin Luther King during the civil rights movement. He invokes it specifically in the letter from the Birmingham County Jail, that it gave enormous moral courage to Gandhi in his struggle to liberate India from colonialism. I mean, that the freedom of quite literally a billion people living on earth right now may owe some debt to this work, however much it skin reacts against us. Might might have gone acknowledged in the in the body of well, the she piece. does talk about civil disobedience and and make an exception for that in in Thoreau's work. Well, okay, but there's there's or there's, letter from whatever it's called. It's, the text is not called civil disobedience, but the letter that he wrote while in jail for civil disobedience. Right, but Thoreau put into the world words that have had a profound effect on the course of liberation movements in the 20th century, and that's nowhere in evidence. Secondly. Thoreau felt as though he lived in a 
profoundly morally damaged society, a society made morally sick by slavery. And in that sense, I think he did look around him and see, given how pervasive this evil is in my culture, what kind of a withdrawal, moral internal withdrawal do I have to make in order to find what is essential or still possibly untainted about myself? And how do I physicalize that? And, you know, I think there's a degree, a high degree of casualness in the dismissal of this person who's meant a lot, not just to like grotty boys that we didn't like in high school, self-serious grotty boys. (laughs) I actually liked the boy I mentioned. (laughs) I had a crush on him. But to the moral course of humanity in general. And if you're so grudging as to not even advert to that in the course of a text like this, I I have a hard time seeing where its power comes from. Well, I I think that you make a good point, Stephen, that the piece is perhaps as much impassioned as, say, Walden or civil disobedience are. Neither Thoreau is admitting the possibility of, of an alternate point of view in their work. It may be that he drove it out of her, that this almost allergic reaction that she has to his voice and uh, his persona as an author sort of diminished that uh, maybe a more worldly take on him as an example of somebody who had many great ideas, but who could not really live up to them himself. And that that is often how it is with human beings, that the people who advance important ideas don't live up to them. That doesn't mean that the advancement of those ideas doesn't have a, a strong and significant influence. But when you're just talking about relating to the author on the page, you can feel that there's a, you know, in Thoreau's case, a, a kind of an arrogance. I mean, there's a whole section where he explains why he finds philanthropy or, or helping the poor, or the disadvantaged, to be completely pointless and not for him. And that seems not actually that compatible with some of the people that you've mentioned as influenced by him. So clearly they're picking and choosing from <laughs> what they decide. He also makes a comparison. He, he, he also sort of dismisses actual slavery as being less significant than being enslaved to one's own mind. You know, there's just but, there's a little bit of a sense that his, his moral compass is not but, but perfectly I, set. But you're missing, I think you're missing my point, which is that if you have no initial sympathy for for the work at all. And furthermore, if you have so little sympathy for the others who have had sympathy for the work, if you're so inclined from the get-go to dismiss something, you will only see its blemishes, as anyone who's decided to do this can do. You can go through and extract all of them and put upon the you know, table of everyone's consideration, a giant pile of zits that you've taken from any writer. <laughs> a pile and, of and zits? That's the most disgusting Steve, image. Steve, I don't think And I meant it to be fulsomely disgusting because that's essentially what this piece is. It's just a giant pile of this man's blemishes. I disagree. I disagree. Re- presented with no sympathy for the fact that, like, hugely morally important human beings who've made enduring contributions to humanity took courage in this work. And instead, what we're essentially told is that anyone who likes it is a kind of narcissistic dupe. And that to me, it's just a work of criticism that doesn't begin with an with a with some understanding of how something entered the world and changed it and why. To me, just it just has it has no value as criticism. Well, I don't think that this is just a list of 
beefs and, and gripes. Um, I think that what Schultz sees in Thoreau is this strain of American individualism and the toxic side of it. And I think that we still have a strong vein of that, a huge vein of that in our culture, the sort of libertarian, it's wrong to help other people, it's unnecessary to depend on anyone at all, any value that society has can be dispensed with if you feel like you don't agree with it. I mean, there's Obviously, there are principled defiers of social custom and and the law who have done great things, but there have also been the reverse of that. I mean, if it's an excuse for Martin Luther King, why isn't it an excuse for the Unabomber? I mean, it, it. I mean, there is a there is a vein of American individualism that is really dangerous and possibly toxic, and that Thoreau does also speak to that as well as to the things that we admire and some of the figures you've mentioned. Laura, I think that that can just be played anyway. I mean, there's there's no telling what the Unabomber is sitting reading in his cabin alone in the woods. Look, here's the thing about genius is that it expresses itself in the extreme. And it's always possible to say of anybody who's a genius that, you know, their radical uniqueness as a human being is nothing but a flaw. And they're always dangerously close to being that kind of self-caricature. And any time you withdraw all initial sympathy from regarding someone who's done something radically unique, you're going to portray that as perverse, that idiosyncrasy, which goes into making something lasting, as as sheer perversity. And that's why, simply as a piece of writing, I found this, and I should say, I really cherish Catherine Schultz as a critic and like her personally. I just thought that this, as a rhetorical performance, couldn't possibly be effective because it implies that anybody who's ever responded to this work is deluded. Maybe I'm just thinking about this a lot because I wrote a huge piece for Slate about this figure, but I perpetually thought in both reading Catherine's piece and then revisiting Walden of Steve Jobs as being a a similar figure in many ways. There's the sort of self-denying discipline. There's the belief that he sees the truth and future in a way that other people are not able to. And then there's also this claim of a democratic impulse. And I think Steve is at least right in that this is a difficult equation to add up. We want to believe that an individual can sort of rise above the crowd and do something important and significant all on his or her own out of the truth that he or she experiences. But at the same time, we also want to be democratic and we want to feel that everybody gets a chance and that everybody is treated with a a, a modicum of respect and that people's desires are honored, which is not actually what Thoreau does. So these sort of difficult, towering figures that we find inspiring, we almost inevitably also find troubling. So maybe she is unduly one-sided in in just focusing on the troubling side. But you have to also remember, if you want to consider the context, that Thoreau is generally revered in American culture. And one of the reasons why she might be coming on so strong is, is that she's pushing back against that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's undeniably, it's a Jeremiah, as Laura says. It's a very strong piece of polemic. I mean, I think that she does, if anything, make the case for going past the surface tote bag. I came to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. You know, three quotes of Walden that, that we all know. So in that sense, it is an argument for reading it. Then again, you're right. It's a very strong takedown of the book. I mean, I would argue that the very intensity of Steve's reaction seems like a sign that this article is worth reading and, and responding to in some way even if it's just to get your dander up about how horrible it is. All right. Well, the article is called Pond Scum. There you go. Henry David Thoreau's Moral Myopia. It's by Catherine Schultz, and it's in The New Yorker. Check it out. Tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Dana. What do we got? Our second sponsor this week is The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers fascinating video and audio lectures in a wide variety of subjects, all taught by top experts in their field. Julia's not here this week, Steve, but I know she is very into the great courses, specifically the cooking classes that they offer. I think Julia, I feel feel like Julia is kind of the, the food advocate among us. If anybody comes up with a, an idea for a, a recipe, it's going to be Julia. So I trust her on this, and she really does get into these classes. Here are a few of the ones they've offered recently. Essential Secrets of Spices and Cooking, Making Healthy Food Taste Great, Baking Pastries and Desserts, and this one very useful for me, Making Great Meals in Less Time. These courses are filmed in partnership with the Culinary Institute of America, and they provide an opportunity to learn tips from a master chef and enhance your own cooking skills. So to order these or any other of the courses offered at The Great Courses, just go to thegreatcourses.com slash culture. All right, Steve, back to the show. All right, thanks, Dana. Moving on. Are lectures a vital medium for communicating complex ideas for showing young minds how to build long and nuanced arguments? Are they efficient means of conveying large amounts of information, or are they inherently discriminatory and therefore anachronistic, a new body of evidence suggests that this venerable format of the credentialed pedagogue standing in front of a group of avidly scribbling learners may be be biased. So Dana, I should say that there have been two separate pieces in the New York Times, one of which argues from a set of empirical studies that the lecture format may be discriminatory towards minority students, possibly women as well, that maybe it's a, a white male anachronism that is best done away with. A follow-up piece has argued more effectively that the lecture format is really central to the pedagogical mission of a university. Um, And the things that might replace it, uh, called active learning methods, um, can't and won't really substitute for what a lecture provided. So these are two separate kinds of arguments. Which one you pick, which one you want to start with? All I know is that when I read the most recent of the two that you mentioned, which is Molly Worthen's piece in the in the Sunday Review last week, um, which is called Lecture Me Really, so she's the pro-lecture pro side, I felt very intuitively sympathetic. And when she described the uh, the dilemma that, that got her started thinking about this, which is that she was beginning her history class for the semester and had access to all of this technology where she could, you know, bring the internet into the classroom and project images on the walls, but she couldn't requisition a lectern from her school, just a simple wooden lectern to hold her notes. Um, It it made me feel a a nostalgia for a great, great period in my life when I heard incredible, incredible teachers give amazing lectures. And I'm not saying that that's the only format of pedagogy that has value or that it may not have flaws that could be compensated with other teaching methods. But to me, it seems like the essence of teaching at the college level is in some ways a relationship, right? A relationship between a teacher and a professor in which, I mean, if it's a good professor, they know a lot more than you do. They have mastered Mm -hmm. a field that you know absolutely nothing about. And I just remember sitting in the philosophy classes taught by this incredible philosophy professor 
who spoke only in French, first of all, who I only understood, and this was not because of the French, it was because of the terminology. I understood probably every fifth word that he said or something like that. And I took his classes for seven years. I would go and sit in them and essentially write down everything he said, coming up with a Mm. shorthand to write it down. And the reason that I did that is that I just felt that what he had to say was so important you know, that, that it didn't quite matter whether what I had to say about it. I wasn't waiting for my chance to ask a question and contribute my two cents. I was trying to absorb some of the erudition, like, radiating off of this, this person. And yeah. obviously, obviously, the model of, like, a man radiating erudition while we all sit around and write down every word has its problems as a learning format, right? It obviously has to be questioned and in some ways overturned. But I don't, I don't think that we can ever get away from the irreducible fact that teaching consists of someone who knows something talking to people who don't know it and want to know it. Right. Okay. So, Laura, this seems to me to get at really the heart, the interesting heart of this issue, which is, can we isolate the variables here and separate them and determine what the real issue is? Is it, is it, is, is it really a, a purely discriminatory one, that this is a format that harkens back to the day when everybody in the room was a white male? Or is there something of what Dana is getting at, which is that that relationship of authority, of intellectual authority, of commanding intellectual authority, which puts one person, regardless of race or gender, at the front of a classroom and consigns everyone else to passive silence is uh, intolerable to a new generation of learners? Well, I think Worthen does make an important distinction between the humanities and science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or the, the, the STEM disciplines. And when you look at the evidence that was presented in, in her op-ed by Annie Murphy-Paul, what you see is that the classes that have the best result with active learning are classes in those fields, in those science, technology, engineering, and mathematical fields, where you're trying to get these students to master a large but fairly stable body of information and ideas and 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 data. And that active learning usually involves a lot of things like quizzes, things that are not even necessarily, you know, anti-authoritarian because they're basically, can you answer this question? Or, you know, will you learn better by interacting with the material rather than just memorizing facts about it? And that seems to be a legitimate argument, you know, that if you're, if you have a more active engagement with, with a stable body of knowledge, you're likely to remember it better. You know, maybe for women or members of of you know racial minorities, that active approach really does enable them to do that. Maybe there is something dysfunctional in that authoritarian relationship with the professor in those fields that somehow just causes them to zone out or not latch on to the material as effectively. But Worthen is a history professor, and I think the difference with the humanities is that in any any discussion of history or literature or anthropology, it's, a, it's an argument or a point of view that comes from a person. It's not a fact. And although facts may be marshaled to make this argument, it's always an argument and arguments always come from a person. And it seems to me that that is one of the important things that a lecture teaches anyone is that is that arguments come from people and that there are counter arguments. Now, whether that format could do more to help people who have who want to object to those arguments or who want to challenge those arguments is i think a slightly separate issue from whether 
it actually helps them learn better or not. Hmm. I would also just add that... It wasn't as if in the classes that I took in grad school that consisted of a lecture format, there was no opportunity for interaction or questioning whatsoever. Well, I, I mean, either there was a TA segment that was led separately during the week where you went in with questions and worked in small groups, or the professor was available in office hours to go talk about things. So so I, I think the idea that, that, that that format alone makes the professor into some sort of untouchable authority seems on its face untrue. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's this idea that people who sort of perceive themselves as to be one down in the social order are intimidated. I mean, one of the figures that was quoted, and and again, I think this was in either a physics or a chemistry class, I can't remember exactly what it was, was that women might make up 60% of the people in the class, but they only ask 40% of the questions, or they only answer 40% of the questions posed by the professor. So there's this idea that in this traditional configuration of teacher and student, people feel intimidated if they feel like they're from a sort of slightly lower social status. But isn't that an educational deficit that should be addressed earlier on? I mean, this is, you know, obviously Monday morning quarterbacking by the time the kid is in college. But isn't that the idea that women or minorities feel less empowered to speak up in class doesn't seem like something that you solve by changing the teaching method at, at higher education levels? I think that's a chronic problem with our education system that we're continually trying to address things in higher education that needed to be dealt with in elementary. Laura, I think you nailed it. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that a lecture format when what's being transmitted from one mind to the group mind is really a set of either masterable skills or or raw information and that's an that's a measurable right you can you can you can you can double blind this and and control group it and figure out who learns more of x and it's it's a simple case of if one is more effective then pragmatically that's the method to go with especially if it helps overcome these arbitrary deficits based on the social legacy of the kid arriving at the university all of that to me is totally uncontroversial what would break my heart and here I side with Dana, is, you know, being in the humanities in a formal setting in which one person has been invested with a kind of preeminent intellectual authority who stands in front of everybody else and delivers a public performance of that knowledge. And a component of that public performance isn't the largest share of it, you could argue, isn't the raw information. It's not a data-based experience that they're conveying. It's the total. It's really the totality of it. It's it's what it is to embody. I mean, for example, a life-changing experience for me was as a graduate student listening to Richard Rorty lecture, a great American philosopher. I could read Richard Rorty's work. I had read Richard Rorty's work. It meant an enormous amount to me. But he was also embodying what it was to be a philosopher. And that kind of modeling, that kind of behavior modeling, to me was intrinsic to higher education, and I would hate to see it get lost. Well, we don't actually know that that's what it's being replaced by, Steve. I mean, I just think that I at least don't really know what active learning would look like in a humanities context, because I haven't been in in a university in a really long time. You know, I'm with you, Laura. I don't, I don't know exactly what it would look like either, but I'm thinking of a conversation I recently had with Will Remus, who's, who's Slate's tech writer, who was studying some new education software and technology that essentially lets every student in the class work at their own pace on whatever the, the text is that they're working on. I think this was in the humanities. And then the teacher, this is at the high school level, I think, kind of circulates through the room, answering questions and addressing problems individually. And when he described this, I thought, that sounds like a great kind of TA segment. That sounds like a great study hall or supplementary segment 
But I, I remember saying to him, like, have they really divorced the classroom from the idea that a teacher stands there or sits there and imparts information and knowledge to students. And uh, and it sounds like, at least with that particular software, that has been supplanted. And that, to me, seems like a loss. Mm-hmm. Also, Laura, I just want to point out that I'm taking as evidence only Molly Worthen's article in the New York Times. And she's very explicit about this, that this quote-unquote sage-on-the-stage paradigm of... of um, of lecturing is being replaced with more student-led kind of uh, activity-based modes of learning. And she places this, just to quote her, in the broader crisis of confidence in the humanities by which they're being assimilated to the goals and methods of the hard sciences. Anyway, I don't think that that's only anecdotal evidence, but I encourage people to check out the article, Lecture Me, period, really, period, by Molly Worthen, and come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what your, your experiences have been in this context. All right, coming up, endorsements, but first a word from a new fiction podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, since we discussed a controversial piece of writing about Walden, I thought that I would endorse a, I think, really, really wonderful piece of writing about Henry David Thoreau's Walden, which is um, E.B. White's letter to Thoreau. Have either of you read this? I haven't, no. It it appears in his essay collection, One Man's Meat, which we'll um, put a link to online, but you can also find it online. We'll put a link to that, too. And uh, it begins with the great sentence, Miss Nims, take a letter to Henry David Thoreau. And he proceeds to just dictate this this letter addressing Henry Thoreau in the second person about his own visit to Concord and walking around Walden Pond and thinking about the book. And it's just it's just this fantastic I mean, first of all, E. B. White is every bit the nature writer that Thoreau is, right? So the, as a description of place, it's it's irreplaceable. But also the combination of the kind of um ironic wit with which he addresses Thoreau and his obvious love for the text. But at the same time, you know, there's definitely quite a bit of, of playfulness about that that very kind of economic entitlement we were talking about. And uh, and he ends by totaling up Thoreau's style, his own expenses for the day, all the money that he spent <laughs> in his trip around Walden, which was $7.70 in 1939, and saying something like, I realize this is what you spent on your entire cabin, but I had to buy my son a baseball glove to bring back to Maine with me. Anyway, it's just an adorable piece of writing. It's called that. Walden, and uh, it's by E.B. White. Ah, uh, wonderful. Um, uh, Laura, what do you have? Okay, I'm going to take this opportunity to pound my shoe on the table about a sci-fi channel miniseries from 2006 called The Lost Room. The show creator was a guy named Christopher Leone, and um, you can't see The Lost Room on Netflix or Hulu or anything like that. It was sort of an abortive six or seven episode miniseries that was 
hoping to become a regular series, but but didn't. It has a great cast, Peter Krause and Juliana Margulies. It's a strange sort of mystery about a group of people who are running all over the world um, trying to obtain objects that were found in a particular hotel uh, motel room in New Mexico um, on a particular date. I won't say any more than that because it's a strange and surprising narrative if you like uh, stories like Lost. Um, you probably will enjoy this one a lot. And you can see another work by the same show creator, writer, um, called Parallels on Netflix, but it's kind of a pale shadow of The Lost Room, although it has some similar techniques and motifs and obsessions. And I just want as many people as possible to watch The Lost Room. But if you can't find it on Netflix or Hulu, how are they supposed to watch it? You just have to order a DVD from Amazon, I'm afraid. Um, This is also a pitch for someone to stream it, because I think that it would be hugely popular if people could see it. And that's all I'm going to say, because it's much more fun if you, if you, if you watch it from the beginning with minimal knowledge. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm also going to take off my shoe and pound the table for something that um, has not been given unmitigated love. But I took my daughter to it in part because she is such a huge fan of the Cucumber Patch of Benedict Cumberbatch. But I took her to the National Theater Live. Um, simulcast of the uh, Hamlet now playing at the Barbican in London. And a lot of people have had reservations about the production. In some ways, they find it too gimmicky or too large and almost too cinematic. But at the center of it really is Cumberbatch's Hamlet. And I have to say, I truly believe it transcends a lot of the silliness, overthought silliness of some of the presentation around him and is a great contribution to the history of playing Hamlet, a really a really uniquely kind of wonderful one. Some of the um, supporting performances are tremendous too. I mean, one of the mysteries at the heart of the play is why does he set about, he seems to set about destroying Ophelia with almost more intensity than killing his uncle. But there's a wonderful Ophelia, a wonderful Gertrude. I feel as though bizarrely in the midst of some overwrought set design, and presentation, there are these really quite human relationships are established at the heart of the production in a way that's hard with Hamlet. I mean, Hamlet, you're trying to penetrate the web of um, familiarity and over-familiarity, right? The tissue of cliches that the you know play famously has become. And I thought that they really did that. I, I, I would say, especially if you have a, a kid for whom the excuse of going to see, you know, Sherlock as Hamlet is possible. I really got a lot out of this. I mean, I don't, I'm being somewhat inarticulate about it, but I, I think it's an astonishing performance by Cumberbatch and it's just, it's very smart. It's very penetrating and it brings Hamlet back alive um, from out of the accretions, you know, of, of, and all the associations of all the people who've played it. And that's no small achievement. Anyway, I pound the table logarithmically, but I, but sincerely, it's a, it's actually a wonderful experience and I highly recommend it. Anyway, for those of you who are not familiar with this, the play is in London right now. It is being beamed into various locations. You just need to Google it. And if you live in a city, you'll find it, or near a city, you'll find it probably being beamed into some theater, downtown theater. You know, pay your 15 or 20 bucks and go, and you get to spend an evening watching London theater. I mean, look, and even if it's not live, so go see it. It's, 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 it's terrific. It really is. I mean, I think he's a great actor. I really do. And, and, and he was born to play Hamlet. So, Even though he's not fat. 
<laughs> All right. Well, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Laura Miller, uh, once again, uh, you were a, a yeoman or a yeo woman uh, filling in for Julia Turner. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Miller and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Culture Fest.